Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Before I get into the topic of our show, I should remind you that it is Christmas season, or as people like to say, the holiday season. If, if I have my dates correctly as I'm speaking this on Friday, December 11th, Hanukkah is wrapping up. But, you know, I think if you really care about people on Hanukkah, let alone Christmas, which is coming up, you should be willing to get them a present going backwards. And in particular, you should consider that getting the present of how to talk to anyone about energy, which is our new energy course. It's out. People are really enjoying it, saying that they're learning a lot, and you can get it at energychampion.net. I think I might have mentioned before we had a very difficult to remember address, so we got energychampion.net. Now you might ask, why don't we have energychampion.com? And the answer is because they are charging $12,500 for it. Uh, and we don't really want to pass that on to you, at least not yet. So energychampion.net, basically, if you missed it last show, this is going to tell you, as the title indicates, how to talk to anyone about energy. During the holiday season, after the holiday season, you're going to be running into a lot of people who are confused about the issues we discuss on this show, who are hostile about them, or who are just uh, ignorant about them, ignorant in the innocuous sense, they just don't know. And the question is, how comfortable do you feel in your ability to do the truth justice, to move people that you talk to in the right direction? This, the importance of this should be particularly clear now because we're just wrapping up these Paris, what they call uh, climate talks, which are really assaults on energy production. And that kind of thing exists because not enough people who know the truth about energy are able to talk about it. So we have an election coming up in 2016. Uh, Part of what we need to do is make energy a big issue, which I'll be discussing uh, in the coming weeks and months. Uh, But insofar as it's an issue on any level, we need to make sure that people get the right information. So the ability to turn yourself into a mental magnet, as I like to think of it, and learn how to conduct conversations such that you are just way more effective is is just invaluable. I think it's invaluable to you. It's certainly invaluable to the rest of us who will be be grateful to you for your uh, abilities. So in the course, we talk about uh, all the things, all the essentials that I think are necessary for becoming a master persuader in one-on-one situations. I talk about the key rules that every good conversation has to follow. I give you a flow chart showing you exactly what to do in different kinds of situations, depending on how the conversation is going. I give you dozens and dozens of talking points and material that you can potentially use uh, for different topics, depending on what works best for you and, and for the situation. There's real life examples of this stuff in practice. There's a checklist of what to make sure happens in every conversation. So the goal is to just have you totally covered. It definitely goes hand in hand with the moral case for fossil fuels, so make sure that you have that as well. But now what we have is for less than $100 total, if you combine the course and the moral case for fossil fuels, you can become an energy champion just on a totally different level than you've ever been able to. And I think you'll really enjoy your ability to have a different kind of conversation with people. You'll have a different kind of calm and definitely a different kind of influence. So again, energychampion.net. Check it out. The first 20 minutes of the course you can see just by pressing play. Of course, you could hear part of it last week uh, on Power Hour, so you can listen to it that way, but just get a taste of it. See if it's for you, and if it is, uh, pick one up or pick one up for a loved one, whether the holidays are ahead or past. All right. Now, let's get to the regular show. On this episode of Power Hour, we will be talking about 
Global Warming with Pat Michaels, who's a great friend of the show, and the author of the new book, Lukewarming. So what is lukewarming? And more broadly, what is the history of all of this concern about global warming? It's a subject we've talked about a little bit in the past, but not enough. So Pat Michaels will be here to educate us. So we will be back talking about lukewarming on the other side. Our Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. We are joined once again by our good friend and director of the Center for the Study of Science at the Cato Institute, which, by the way, I am an adjunct scholar there among my one other title as president of the Center for Industrial Progress, Patrick Michaels. Pat, welcome back to Power Hour. Great to be with you. All right. Well, you've got a lot going on, and most importantly, you've got a book called Lukewarming, The New Climate Science that changes everything. All right, what is lukewarming? Well, of course, you can tell the title is somewhat a dig at Naomi Klein uh, because she thinks that global warming changes everything to the point that capitalism has to be outlawed. And, and Which she thought, thought before she believed in catastrophic global warming, incidentally. Yes. So it changed nothing for her. Uh, that's just, true. Uh, the ra uh, it was the rationalization that made her slightly more prominent. But uh, uh, this, uh, we, we don't think this new climate science is going to change Naomi also. But it's a pretty good book, I think. It's a, it's a compilation of uh, the story that he's evolved over the years of how the climate models are predicting way too much warming, meaning the consequences of putting CO2 in the atmosphere are much less than we thought they were. Uh, and we talk about the concept that the computer models um, have overestimated heating, and we go into the reasons for that. Some of our science, some of those reasons are scientific, and some of them are social and have to do with the way science works as a process. So I have not yet read the book, or I, I have not re yet read nearly uh, all of it. Stefan, whom many of you know, has read all of it, or at least an earlier version, which he said was very good. And Pat tells me that the Kindle version, which you can get right now, go download Lukewarming Now so you can follow along, or you, you can get it on our show notes. Uh, that is even better. And if you just look at the topics, I think you'll find, you'll think, wow, there's, there's a lot of things that I want to know about because these are so many of the things that come up in the news. So whether it's California or floods or tornadoes or illness. It, it's just, there's all kinds of stuff. So, but here's what I want to do. So one of the things I, I've known Pat for a while, I've known his work for a while, and I've known him for a bit uh, less time than that. And in the past couple of years, I've gotten to know him quite well. And of course, he wrote the best blurb of all time. Not of course, but he did write the best blurb of all time about the moral case for fossil fuels. So I'm, I'm very grateful. But one thing I like about Pat is that he has a very strong scientific background. He's been a climate scientist for decades, uh, and he also has a very clear way of explaining things. And so I wanted to take the occasion of this interview to go back in time a little bit and give a little bit of context on this issue, and, and particularly to start out with what's called the greenhouse effect, because what I find one thing I find interesting about this effect, and I think others should, is that this is not some new discovery that was conveyed by Bill McKibben in 1989, despite what he would say. This is a phenomenon about the nature of certain gases, including CO2 in the atmosphere, that has been known about for over 100 years, and that was known about, for example, when it got extremely hot, relatively speaking, in the 30s and 40s. And yet, back then, nobody thought it was, to use your brilliant term, a satanic gas that was going to cause a catastrophe. So what was the understanding and viewpoint of CO2 back in the day before modern catastrophism? Because I think people think, oh, this is a new discovery that yeah. predicted catastrophic warming inherently, and then, oh, now it's lukewarming, versus in the past it seemed like it was lukewarming in terms of the understanding. Well, to understand the history, you, you really do have to go back into the 19th century. Um, the, the absorption of infrared radiation by so-called greenhouse gases, like carbon dioxide and water vapor, was discovered in laboratory experiments by John Tyndall uh, around 1870. 
and it was first uh, uh, brought into the realm of uh, forecasting science, if you will, by Savante Arrhenius in 1896, who calculated that if you doubled atmospheric carbon dioxide, uh, you would get a net surface warming of about four and a half degrees Celsius, and that uh, if you went halfway, you'd get to be about maybe three degrees Celsius or so, that there would be more warming in the polar regions than at the equator. There will be more, more, more warming in the northern hemisphere than in the southern hemisphere. And pretty much that's what the climate models that were developed 100 years later say. Well, turns out they were both wrong. But we have to intervene here a little bit more on the history because it's a fascinating tour into the way that science really works. You know, when I was in graduate school, and a little bit before then, so say in the mid-1970s and early 1970s, the reigning paradigm in climate science was that there was very little, if any, human influence on global climate. Uh, and then a guy at the University of Wisconsin who became my sponsor up there, Reed Bryson, uh, in the 1960s, began publishing papers with an archaeologist uh, by the name of Bereas, showing that if you dug through the middens, that's the garbage heaps of cultures in the Great Plains, you could see that the climate changed over the course of 50 or 100 years from short grass prairie to long grass prairie, and that's, that's pretty significant. So it was changing in ways that were socially significant. Oh my God, that was anathema. The atmospheric science community reacted uh, as they react to all things that are against their prevailing paradigms. They pretty much uh, ostracized Reed Bryson. And oddly enough, uh, then uh, it became uh, a paradigm of global cooling. Uh, when, when human influence on climate was first admitted, temperatures in the northern hemisphere in the early compilations we had seen had dropped a heck of a lot from the 1940s through the mid-1970s, about as much as they had risen early in the 20th century. So people got on this Ice Age bandwagon. And I have to tell you, Alex, I had a hard time warming up to that one, too. No pun intended. Nope. No, no, it's a double entendre, actually. But... Um, then, uh, this is very, very interesting. Jimmy Carter was uh, claimed to be a nuclear engineer. I am mispronouncing the word because I am quoting our former president. And uh, because he was a nuclear engineer, he thought that nuclear power could save us from de dependence on uh, Middle Eastern oil. You may remember he became president in 1976 just three years after the Arab oil embargo of 1973. So it was a pretty hot political topic. Uh, and folks at the Department of Energy, uh, the Secretary of Energy, James Schlesinger, uh, and a, a government apparatchik that was around then, who's still around today doing the same stuff, which is trying to influence policy the way that he wants it. His name is Michael McCracken. Uh, they went McCracken went to Schlesinger and said, you know, there's this global warming thing. If we put more CO2 in the air, it's going to warm up. And we can probably get you your nuclear plants if we make this the cause of the day. And so it was actually a conscious decision by people uh, in the Carter administration or working for the Carter administration to push carbon dioxide-induced global warming. And then the Department of Energy released tremendous amounts of research money. Once you do that, you change the incentive structure in science where a scientist does not get advancement unless he is working in the area where the money is. That's just the way promotion and tenure work. And lo and behold, you established a paradigm of global warming, which has become virtually impossible to dislodge because almost all the funding in environmental science is predicated toward that issue. That That's is really, long. what's that? <laughs> no, that was good. I want, and I don't want to pursue that, but I want to go back to Arrhenius for a minute because I remember reading some quotes from him or some summaries of him. And you mentioned his view of climate sensitivity being very high compared to what's actually borne out to be the case. Uh, one thing that was interesting was that he was not alarmed by this. 
he did not think this is some catastrophe. He thought it would be net beneficial to human life, in yes. my recollection. So the, the point I want to emphasize at this stage is that X amount of warming is at least not necessarily bad. And, and if depending on how high X is, I mean, if it was 20 degrees Celsius, it would definitely be not necessarily uh, good. But there's a certain prejudice in, in the modern debate. I mean, there, there is a prejudice in the modern discussion that if we are causing warming, and, and the we are causing is the emphasis, then it must be catastrophic for human life. And thus, the, the, the debate gets boiled down to this issue of, are we causing anything or are we not? Are you a believer or are you a denier? And even within that, it gets, if you take it more precisely, I think it's the debate that your, your book gives an important answer to, is are, is, are we causing mild warming are we causing lukewarming? Are we causing dramatic warming? And, and those are important types of questions to ask, provided, and this is the point of moral case for fossil fuels, they're put, they're put in a human perspective where, where lukewarm or mild or, or large or whatever is, is in relation to human life. Whereas I just, so I wanted to point out the history of this where somebody thought a dramatic amount of warming by our standards was a good thing. Whereas today you have the prejudice that anything that we do is is a bad thing. Well, science has context, you know. Uh, Svante Arrhenius, who published that paper in 1896, and I just looked it up, it was uh, five degrees uh, for doubling CO2, not 4.5, and three degrees for going halfway. Um, he was a Swede. It's cold. <laughs> and they thought that, you know, warming was probably a good thing. And, uh, you know, the Vikings used to be on Greenland. Something chased them off. It, ultimately revealed that it was the cooling of the Little Ice Age, which made the place uh, very difficult to inhabit for agrarian types. Uh, yeah, so it was not thought to be a bad thing. It, it only became a bad thing, frankly, when it became politicized uh, as a policy tool, again, initially in the Carter administration and then through the Reagan administration and all the other ones, the budget just grew and grew and grew and grew. And you cannot disperse, disperse that amount of money from Washington, which, which for climate research over the years is probably over $100 billion, maybe even more. Um, you can't disperse that amount of money unless you portray this, this issue as a terrible problem. That's the way the political process works. And so that institutionalized global warming as the end of the world. There's only one tiny little problem, Alex. Nature does not ask the opinion of the Carter administration or the Reagan administration or the Clinton administration and act accordingly. So it never really warmed at the rate that it was would be consistent with this apocalyptic notion. Yes, it has warmed. Uh, it hasn't warmed very much in the last two decades, but certainly there was a warming from the late 1970s through the late 1990s. Uh, it's just that it hasn't been that much. I would argue that it's lukewarming. And I, I will tell you one thing. The amount of vitriol tendered against the lukewarming hypothesis is consistent with the fact that it's dangerous because it's not a denial that carbon dioxide has an influence on climate. It's a statement that it does and that you guys exaggerated it. And certainly it's a tremendous threat to the gravy train of climate disaster. Definitely. Uh, by the way, I, I consider it all global thawing because I think it's, it's just too cold. Um, you think it's too cold? I think it's too cold. Well, I mean, but you know, by your, geologic, your probably think it's too cold too. You What's know, that? we evolved. <laughs> well, you know, just we in terms of in the in the tropics, yeah, uh, in the in the seasonally dry tropics in East Africa. Warm. Yeah, it's it's just funny these terms. I do I do like lukewarming. I'm I'm <laughs> I hate to say I'm warming up to it more and more. Well, all, you know all what. The time. We have this we have this meeting in Paris going on right now to uh to to put forth some climate policy that is going to be at least controversial but you know if we're lucky there will be so much infighting over giving money away 
from the developed world to the developing world because of ostensibly because of climate change, that there won't be much of an agreement. And we may get a lukewarm agreement, which would be so fitting in a lukewarm world, wouldn't it? Yeah, but I, I don't consider it lukewarm to only have, you know, a billion people die prematurely instead of five billion or something. No, they billion. don't they, they, they don't stay lukewarm very long, do they, Alex? Uh no, no, no. So God, so many interesting things in what you raised, but I want to go back to your point about incentives, and let's let's play sure. devil's advocate. So I'll be uh, put on some horns, Alex. Yeah, I'll be devil, like you know, Michael Mann and everyone else combined uh, into one. So come on, Pat. Like, look, these are scientists we're talking about. No profession in the world has higher integrity than scientists. I mean, think about what the scientific community has done. Galileo was willing to die or to be under house arrest to defend his views. And are you saying the, the, the heroes of modern climate science who just, you know, since they were born, all they wanted to do was understand the mechanics of the atmosphere and how they affect human beings and what we can do, what we might do to make things more negative and more positive. These, these, intransigent individuals who just follow the data to the death, how dare you say that they are influenced by money? Well, the world you're describing uh, never existed. Scientists have been human beings uh, uh, ever since there was the first scientist. Uh, uh, Terence Keeley, the noted historian of science uh, and uh, the person who is probably the dean of uh, the study of uh, this economics of science. He has the sort of this, the, the, the major book, uh, The Economic Laws of Scientific Research, always worth reading. Keeley maintains that scientists are never really searching after truth, or rarely what they're doing is they're trying to defend their hypotheses and their biases to the death. And they will cherry pick the data that makes them look good and fight against the data that makes them look bad and I want to tell you how you get to make, be made to look good in the modern academic structure. You have to publish a lot. And you can't publish a lot unless you have a lot of money. So if you're a climate scientist, what's the sole source of money? It's the federal government. And the federal government definitely has a point of view on climate science. So either you go along with it or you get another job. That's just the way it is. Well, that was a pretty efficient answer. <laughs> now, could ask me how, you know, how I survived in this situation. Because I was at University of Virginia for 30 years. And I was fortunate enough to not be on a tenure track line. They had what they called a research line in which they would promote you to associate professor if they thought you were any good uh, and a full professor. But it didn't, it didn't have all the weighting of you've got to bring in all this money to the department because you're a tenure employee and you're going to be with us for the rest of your life. So I was able to survive in that environment. And the corollary to that survival is maybe we might have a little bit more scientific diversity if we abolish tenure. One perspective on this issue is that coming up with the truth on any significant issue is, is difficult and non-obvious. So if that's the case, then it's not as if reality just somehow imprints the truth on your mind and climate sensitivity is X point Y and that's it. And you just know it in, in this, what Ayn Rand would call intrinsicist way. And if that's the case, then it's particularly true that all these other forms of manipulation and influence that you mentioned can have bearing. So, for example, even just what forms, what, what questions are on and off limits based on the funding. But now, there are, yeah. Let me ask you, yeah. speaking of Ayn Rand, uh, what was the institution that was critical in bringing about the crash of society? It was the State Science Institute. She was extremely prescient about the way that science could be influenced and abused by government. Uh, you know, when John Allison uh, came on as president of the Cato Institute, he sat down with all the scholars and had 
you know, they had four of us at a time talking to him and we would go around, he would go around the table and people would explain what they were doing. And, you know, they used big, long paragraphs and they tried to be really impressive. And he got to me and he said, and Dr. Michaels, uh, what do you do? And I said, Mr. Allison, uh, do you know the book Atlas Shrugged? <laughs> and he said, well, yes. And I said, well, do you know the State Science Institute? And he said, yes. And I said, I'm again it. And he said, oh, I get it. That's good. Well, this is, this is, uh, Pat probably remembers this. I definitely remember. This is how I met Pat. Because there was a contest in the lecture. He, he gave an emergency lecture at the Heartland Institute conference in 2011. There was somebody else who had bowed out. And yeah. he showed an image. And he said, first person to tell me who this, what, what book this is from, <laughs> will get, like, gets a beer. And state sciences, and I must have answered in a millisecond. I mean, nobody in that audience would have a chance, given given my background. I, w I was at the Ayn Rand Institute at the time. But yes, even, and then he, we went out and had several beers. I, I made good on my promise. Oh yeah, no, I, that that was that was uh, uh, a lot of fun. So getting getting back to the incentive thing, yeah. So reading for sure that the case of particularly the character Robert Stadler and the State Science Institute and Alice Shrugged is very important because this is somebody who starts out as a brilliant independent scientific mind but makes a certain compromise which is that he he decides that the government should be the primary funder of science because the government at the outset promises him funding for the type of science that he wants to do allegedly without restrictions but what comes up then well since the government government is his monopoly employer the government's agenda then involves him and can be used to involve him and so what happens is he progressively endorses all of these other irrational scientific fields that are outside of his research and at first he does so reluctantly and then he does so enthusiastically in the sense that he knows the whole thing will collapse without his support and there seems to be a parallel with this in something like climate science where it's not as if everybody who practices climate science or even close agrees with these kinds of catastrophist or I don't know what the opposite of lukewarm is, but dramatic warming predictions. But don't they have a huge incentive to shut up if they disagree? Absolutely. And that's what happens. Uh, you know, all of this is predicated upon a belief. Uh, uh, Ms. Rand used to say, check your premises. And one of the premises that is behind the federalization of science is that it's a public good. And that's the way the federalization of science is sold that there's a market failure, that individuals and societies will not voluntarily support science enough to maintain research and development and discovery. Well, our friend Terence Keeley, who is coming to Cato for six months, by the way, beginning in January, and that should be great fun, has looked at the data and actually tested the hypothesis as to whether or not it's a public good. And it turns out it's not. Scientific progress was just as rapid or non-rapid in the 19th century in the United Kingdom uh, when there was no state support of science whatsoever as it was when the state became the main provider of scientific uh, research and development funds. And the OECD, to its embarrassment, set out a few years back to write a report on the nature of science as a public good and discovered to their chagrin that the more that governments spend on science, actually there is a little bit of a blip of less progress because private money is crowded out. And that's a little bit more diverse than a government point of view and a little bit more tolerant, to say the least. Now, my sense is that it's, it's much worse than that. Because if I look at fields that I know or know anything about, what I, I see so much destruction from the monopoly, uh, the monopoly that exists. So take nutrition, which is something that oh, I, God, I studied yeah. recreationally. Um, this is something where the government has government has a government uh, government recommended diet. So in effect, but what is the government? Right, the government is Barack Obama. Right. And his his minions, I mean, to put it a little meanly, 
but I just mean the president. It's an executive branch. It's a bunch of bureaucrats. And they directly are in, and he appoints, you know, the head of the USDA and all these things and the Surgeon General. And they dictate to us, they say, this is what, quote unquote, science has come up with, with regard to food. And they've been doing this for decades and decades and decades. But that's exactly what you don't want. What you want is for perpetual innovation, which requires perpetual competition, particularly because of Terence's point about the incentives to validate what you're already doing. You want the, you know, quote, paleo people and the vegan people. You want them to be constantly challenged and pushing against each other and, and all these kinds of things that, that in the same, exact same way that you have competition among businesses. You know, businesses are just ideas about how to be productive. So we get much better ideas about how to be productive by them competing. But in the realm of pure ideas, we somehow think that non-competition and leaving it all in the hands, ultimately, of Barack Obama is going to lead to a good solution. Yeah, the way the problem with the government monopoly on science funding is that it also creates the big man problem. Uh, people can arise to considerable positions of power and then have inordinate influence uh, as advisors in the scientific uh, development and funding process. So in the field you're talking about, nutrition, there was a big man by the name of Ansel Keys, and he would brook no criticism. Turns out he was deadly wrong about a number of aspects of nutrition, but he was a big man because he developed the K ration, Keys for K, which kept our soldiers uh, in the field and having great nutrition during World War II. And as a result of that, he got to direct substantial portions of the government's monopoly on nutrition research. So let's go back to the, the 80s. So you, you mentioned the, the development of climate science and different views on it. And I thought that was really fascinating. Now we get to the 80s and you mentioned that the, the Carter administration and the government more broadly is starting to fund research in this direction. And I imagine once you go in this direction, it's very, very hard uh, to, to reverse course. So as Howard, describe the scene metastasizing or transmogrifying or whatever word we can use to signify negative and somewhat disgusting growth with regard to how you're seeing the field of climate science evolve or devolve or because you know you were there and i you know i was a little kid and most of the listeners were never there so it's it's just so great to hear from somebody who was there about how how these how this extreme warming view just became more and more entrenched, more and more politicized, and more and more publicized. You know, I, I'm afraid that I, I am going to speak off the cuff and try and analogize this to a very, very wonderful book uh, in recent years called The Emperor of All Maladies, which is a book uh, about cancer and how it works and the way it works. And what happens in science, I think, is that ideas, uh, when they are capable of commanding essentially all the nutrition of the government because the government wants that to happen, they become essentially cancerous. They take over the scientific enterprise and they disable the normal immune system of science, which would be up and down rigorous peer review. Instead, you get PAL review because people know each other and they're all on the same gravy train. Yeah, you, I, I, I thought of the emperor of all maladies because you, discuss, you brought up the word metastasis, and that's what it is. So how, how did it actually uh, play, well, play out? Yeah, so I mean, I imagine that the, the views become more extreme. So they, you know, they get transferred to the politicians. Hansen testifies all the way through Gore's movie. We, we can't cover everything, but I'm just curious if you have any, any overall sense of the progression that, that you can give us. Because for many of us, we heard about it at a discrete point very late in this game, and it was presented as a cutting-edge discovery. So whether somebody read Bill McKibben's The End of Nature or saw Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth or read James Hansen's Storms of My Grandchildren or whatever that's called, it's it's viewed as here's a cutting edge thing, whereas you saw the the metastasizing happen from the beginning, and you saw a, a field that was much more rational turn into something much more irrational. 
Well, what happened, again, it was in the Carter administration that uh, um, Jim, the Energy Secretary James Schlesinger was convinced by these apparatchiks like Michael McCracken, who still is kicking today, uh, and he's very proud of his convincing of James Schlesinger to uh, ensconce CO2 as the scientific issue of the day rather than secular climate change or global cooling or anything like that because it would give them the policy that they want. And once that money started to be dispersed, the other agencies saw the utility of it. One of them was NASA. And then uh, uh, Robert Jastrow, who directed the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, hired a guy by the name of James Hansen to do his climate modeling. Hansen uh, never saw a television camera or a government grant or taxpayer <laughs> money that he didn't like. And so... In 1988, on June 23rd, on a record-setting day for temperature in Washington, D.C., following a record warm night, following another record warm day, Hansen testified in front of a joint House-Senate committee. Uh, it was actually run by the Senate, and the guy who ran the hearing was a guy by the name of Timothy Worth. Senator Tim Worth now works for, the, I believe, uh, either the Clinton Initiative or the United, one of these big United Nations initiatives schlepping money around on global climate change. But at any rate, it was extremely hot, and uh, a remarkable thing happened. Hansen was sweating bullets, uh, and, a, and, and it turns out that Worth ultimately admitted in 2009 that uh, they had opened the windows in the hearing room the night before, which would disable the air conditioning in order to uh, make the room very hot and have Hanson sweating and the television cameras would do all this. Uh, and then uh, Kerry, John Kerry, the current Secretary of State, said he was there and, you know, Jim Hansen uh, uh, gave us this wonderful show and the Senate staff opened up the windows so that everybody would be sweating. Well, it turns out that uh, Worth's chief of staff said, no, that did not happen. So if you would like to hear how politicians respond to when they're confronted with the truth, when they're trying to portray science as theater, I will quote from Timothy Worth for you when confronted with the fact that the windows weren't open. Correct. According to Worth, quote, some myths about the hearing have circulated over the years, including the idea that the windows were left open or the air conditioning was not working. While I've heard that version of events and repeated it myself, I've since learned that it didn't happen. He created the myth. He <laughs> made it up. It's, it's quite remarkable that decades ago, in 1988, the desire to turn global warming from science into theater was so strong that proponents imagined they were doing it. Can you believe that? Yeah, I saw that a couple of years ago, and I because we had talked about it. I think when you came on in in twenty eleven, and I remember researching it last year. And then there are all these contradictory views, and they're, they're saying, "Oh, this is just a conspiracy spread by the, you know, by the deniers and stuff like this." No, it's not a conspiracy. They they wanted to portray it as theater as back as early as nineteen eighty eight, and they thought that they had, even when they hadn't, that they had turned it from rational discussion into the manipulation of public opinion and a climate of fear uh, enabled through monopoly government funding of one point of view on this issue and the ac academic community rewarding itself and its members based upon how much research money they get and how much they publish. Yeah, it got really bad really fast. And it's easy, easy, easy to write a book about it. Yeah, well, uh, that that was going to be my final request when we wrap up. Is I, I want to read that book about after after I read Lukewarming. I, I mean, the history of this is so good, and and you know, there's you know, I don't want to act like you know you're that old or Lindzen is that old, but you know, the yeah. there's a bunch of you who've been around for a while, and I want all these stories. You know, they, they need to be immortalized at some. That's point. why Terrence Keeley is coming to the Cato Institute along with a few others. Uh, we are going to be working on a new book, uh, and the tentative title is High Tech Larceny, uh, how the government uses, quote, science, end quote, to take away your stuff. 
Interesting. Well, we can definitely, he or you or both can definitely come on uh, to talk about that. All right, so I want to go to, since, since we're uh, a little bit short on time, I want to go to the modern era. So you know, Hansen testifies in 1988. It starts to become a bigger and bigger issue. You see these international summits and whatnot. Now, the way that this is portrayed is that in the last couple decades, that all of these predictions and viewpoints have been validated. That is, it's gotten much, much warmer, and, and the you know typical manipulation you see with this kind of thing is hottest year ever, hottest day ever, hottest afternoon ever, blah, blah, blah. Um, what, is the, what is the big picture in terms of warming or lukewarming in the past 20 years when we've had, I think, one-third of man's entire historic CO2 emissions occur. So by the theory of dramatic runaway warming, you would expect dramatic runaway warming. Well, unfortunately, uh, when that was supposed to occur, the surface temperature either stopped warming or it slowed its rate of warming considerably. Uh, it has not been lost on folks that our government science laboratory last June adjusted their temperature history to stick a warming trend back in the data by substituting data that everybody knew wasn't very good for data that everybody knew was better. They can get away with this. You understand that because it goes through the peer review process at a journal like Science, which is just very craven on the global warming issue, and it gets a very light review. If somebody can say, all is good with this science. We need to continue doing it. That's going to get reviewed very, very lightly. It's the guys who say, hey, the emperor doesn't have any clothes. I hate to point this out. That might have some problems. Yeah, and it goes back to the idea of, of a monopoly system versus exactly. a, a competitive system. Exactly. So I figure the way that we could fix this, uh, if we were, you know, if we, we had power that we don't have, would be to diversify the base for scientific funding. Uh, one way would be to uh, maybe have a cap and trade program for federal funding, if you will. And uh, um, non-federal entities could contribute to that, non-federal entities that didn't have the federal viewpoint. And if they contributed to that research stream, then the federal total support would go would decline so that it would add up to a constant value. Uh, that idea is not popular with my academic friends, by the way. Well, not too popular with me, if you were actually serious. But, I mean, it might be better than the existing thing. I mean, the simple thing, although the you know difficult to, to pass thing, is to abolish all of this funding. Yes, of course. Uh, that is correct. But, you know, that's going to be very, very difficult to accomplish uh, in today's world, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, I'm hoping that as this, as reality continues to conflict with this hyperbole and wild speculation, I think your, your book is, is very timely in that respect, just showing how radically wrong these predictions have been. As that continues to occur, hopefully in the not too distant future, we will be able to view it retrospectively as a complete failure of science, and I would also argue ethics. And at that point, there can be some evidence that can be put as evidence toward, well, maybe the, the whole structure is wrong. Because if we created a monopoly that helped ruin many aspects of the field and that made us take catastrophic action with regard to people's energy sources, how can we say that, oh, we need the government to be involved in science and, and the usual socialist refrain, our gang will do it better. So in, in the future, yeah. we'll say, oh, our gang wouldn't have supported runaway global warming. I mean, come on. Nobody believes in that anymore. I'm not a green. Yeah, that's what I'm hoping. You know, and well, here's, here's, here is what I think uh, is happening, is the disparity between the computer models uh, and the observed temperatures continues to grow, despite the fact, e even this year, being a record warm year in the surface temperature record, the disparity is actually going to have grown between this year and last, last year, if you, look at, if you look at the models. There's... You can only go so long before you have to admit those three words in life that are so hard to say. We were wrong. And when the scientific community 
has to say we were wrong about global warming. It wasn't this issue. That's not just going to provoke uh, uh, an examination of global warming science and ethics. It's going to promote an examination of what in the world we're doing, the way we're running science in this society. That's possibly the only good thing that can come out of this. And I'm, I'm wondering optimistically how the Internet will play in this, because with a lot of these old predictions, first of all, you didn't have as many forms of media making them because there weren't as many forms of media, and it's, it's much harder to find. You know, you need to do all these elaborate searches to find these old quotes. Now, they're, now we have decades of this stuff immortalized on the Internet forever. Yep. And we're going to, all of these characters, you know, you look, anyone from Paul Krugman to James Hansen to Barack Obama, they have a, you know, whatever the digital equivalent of a paper trail is. Yes, they do. Very, very long. And, and when, you know, when the atrocity of it is exposed, they will have record after record after record of them saying these things in the same way that I think, imagine if you, you took sort of the modern left and you, the internet somehow came 50 years earlier or 75 years earlier, and you saw the massive support of communism and even of the Nazis by the left. I think it would be, they would be much more discredited and it would be much more thrown in their face versus them just being able to say, oh, we never really meant that. Uh, forget about the whole socialism thing. Now we're just focused on the environment or the Vietnam yeah. War. That is correct. And it is, there's also another side to that coin, which is that the internet allows uh, much more reasoned discussion and truth to emerge than the monopoly would like. So that you see these sites like what's up with that. Uh, you know, some of the stuff on there isn't very good, but yeah, there's some really good stuff. You see Judy Curry from Georgia Tech's website, Climate, etc., carrying some very good stuff. This is stuff that the monopoly simply would not permit. But there, uh, there you have people with critical judgment and intelligence reading each other's stuff. Yeah, and if I think of my own work, the moral case for fossil fuels. Imagine you, you just thank you. Imagine you just have the big three networks and the New York Times and a oh, couple God. of others. I mean, you know, fortunately, the Wall Street Journal reviewed it, but it's 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 you know, it's just so amazing to have the internet because you you have the chance of putting it in front of every thinking person, and then every thinking person who recognizes value, you know, such, such as you, that then is a positive indicator to other thinking people who know you or others like you. And, and there's just this, these amazing uh, positive feedbacks that can happen. So I think ultimately, if you know, all things being equal, the truth presented as well as, as the, the false, the truth will win. And so we have this in, incredible advantage fighting these monopoly establishments because the internet is not and cannot be uh, a monopoly unless it really gets taken over. But fortunately, there seems to be a huge, huge resistance uh, to that sort of thing. And I think ultimately what you're going to find is that all of these institutions will become progressively uh, internetized to make up a term. But even education, I, mean, I don't think there's any way that in, in 30 years you're going to have $100,000 a year tuition as the main thing that people are doing. It just seems so archaic when you have all these learning technologies. And, and what will that mean? Well, that'll mean that these places like Harvard and Yale don't have the same monopoly that they did and that their funders don't have the same monopoly by extension uh, that they did. So I, I think you know, the more stuff like this that exists, the better. And that goes to just my final question. What do you think is the greatest value that people are going to get from lukewarming, from, from the book, not the phenomenon? Well, the greatest value is that a, a world that doesn't warm uh, very rapidly is a better world. It's a greener world. You're putting carbon dioxide in the air that's literally making the planet greener. You can see it in satellite data. And I have to tell you, in the lukewarming of the 20th century, uh, life expectancy around the world doubled. And in the developed world, uh, personal wealth increased by 11-fold. So, yeah, you're probably going to see more of the same. So in the book, though, in the book, Lukewarming, what's your favorite chapter? Oh, my favorite chapter is the story about Hansen and Tim Worth uh, and uh, the John Kerry literally fantasizing that they are creating theater. Well, I'm looking forward to Polar Bear's Human Nature, 
that I'm, I'm very interested in, in human nature, but there's a fascinating array of topics here. I think this thing is just six bucks or something on Amazon. Uh, you know, lots, it's divided up into really nice little chunks. So yeah, people learning definitely, definitely get this book. If you don't like it, I'll personally give you a refund. So hopefully it's, it's, it's good. Um, but anyway, Pat, thanks so much for all your support and thanks for being on the show. Well, Alex, it's always fun. Let's do it again real soon. Thanks again to Pat for joining us on the program. Definitely check out the book, Luke Warming. I'm looking forward to reading it myself. Lots and lots of interesting topics. As I said during the show, Pat has, I think, a great knowledge of the subject and also a great ability to explain it. So you don't, you don't find that too often and you should value it when you, when you do find it. That's why we like having him on the show and that's why it's definitely worth it to check out anything that he writes. All right, let's wrap up. So as usual, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. Once again, go to energychampion.net to learn about how to talk to anyone about energy. That's energychampion.net. Uh, just as important, go to industrialprogress.com if you haven't already to make sure you're on our mailing list. Uh, subscribe to this show via iTunes or share with other people, particularly share with other people. Uh, it's becoming more and more popular and people seem glad that we keep doing these. So if you want us to keep doing more, keep sharing. I don't mean that as a threat, just uh, as a, uh, that'll, that'll be good motivation for me. Let's just put it that way. All right. Also, Make sure to check us out on social media, on Facebook and Twitter. You can find us at the Alex Epstein page, the I Love Fossil Fuels page, the I Love Nuclear page, and the Center for Industrial Progress page. All right, next week we will be back with another great guest, another great topic. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.